Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Amen. Uh, tonight we are, like I said, in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk? Habakkuk? Habakkuk. Some would say if you're pronouncing the Jewish U or the Hebrew U, um, it's the ook sound. Ook, right? So, um, Habakkuk, maybe? I don't know. But nonetheless, it's the book of Habakkuk. So that's what we're going to go with. Uh, if you are just joining us your first time, we are taking each minor prophet and we're going through the entire book all at once. So we went through the whole book of Amos, the whole book of Micah. And we're looking at them um, from an aerial view, drawing out the major themes and the major applications of each book. Um, and with each prophet, we have a two, like two sentences to help us to remember what the prophet is about and why it's in the Bible. So with Habakkuk, um, he is the psalmist prophet, the psalmist prophet. And this book is about, and the theme is Israel and God's presence, Israel and God's presence. So the psalmist prophet and Israel and God's presence. Now the prophet Habakkuk we don't know much about him. Uh, we don't know much about him from any other book in the Bible. Since he prophesied the coming of the Babylonian army and its destruction of Judah, he prophesied sometime before that invasion. And many think that Habakkuk ministered sometime during the reign of King Jehoiakim, during or perhaps around the year 607 BC. If you remember our study through the book of Nahum, the Assyrian Empire was in control. Uh, Nahum is all about... Uh, the sin of Nineveh and how God was going to bring destruction and totally demolish the city of Nineveh. And through uh, this new people group, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, as they're called in our text tonight, that there will be a new, basically, world power that's coming into existence. And Israel would go from one exile uh, and under the control of one uh, disciplinary na uh, nation in the Assyrian Empire, they would now come under the Babylonian rule and Babylonian empire. So that's kind of where we are in history. Others believe uh, that he prophesied during the time of Manasseh, King Manasseh. But the, the prophecy tonight and the uh, Habakkuk mainly is talking about what's going on in Judah. If you remember from our past studies that Israel is split into two kingdoms at this point in their history. There's the northern kingdom of Israel that had good kings no, it had wicked kings, right? All their kings were bad. Thank you. Some of you were thought I froze for a second. <laughs> All the northern kings were horrible, okay? Um, and then there's the southern kingdom of Israel, which was called Judah, okay? So the, the country is split in two. This, a lot of our, our, our prophets are speaking towards the northern kingdoms and, and coming against the northern kingdom of Israel. That God was going to bring them into captivity, which he did. And now he's looking, and Habakkuk's looking at Judah and the, the evil and the violence and all that's going in, on in Judah. And he's like, uh, why aren't you doing anything? Like, what's going to happen? And within the next 20 or so years, the Babylonians are going to take captive the, the southern kingdom of Judah as well. And they're going to come under the rule and reign of the Babylonians. But others believe that he prophesied during the time of Manasseh, King Manasseh, who was a wicked king. Guy was awful. He used to saw people in two. It was like kind of a hobby of his. He's cutting people in half, and he's like, likes things in twos. So um, the belief is that he actually had Isaiah sawn in half. 
So Isaiah and Habakkuk were contemporaries, some believe. So that's kind of where we are in history, and that's kind of where uh, this prophecy is taking place. It's hard to say with certainty when Habakkuk prophesied, and I think you're okay with that. I think everyone's like, I'm okay without the like exact date. I'm okay with it. I just know that it happened. But um, so, since he speaks of God raising up the Babylonians, we can guess that it was written that 25-year period between the time of Babylon and the conquering of Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire. So that's kind of where we are in history, 587 B.C., 612 B.C., <coughs> somewhere in there. Okay? You with me? Some of you are. That's okay. Chapter 1 breaks down like this. Chapter 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 1 is the worry of Habakkuk. Chapter 2 is the waiting of Habakkuk. And chapter 3 is the worship of God by Habakkuk. Okay? So worried, waiting, worship. And that's where we are in, uh, that's kind of how the, the book breaks down. Okay? All right. Here we go. Whether you like it or not. Here we go. Verse 1, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry? And even you will not hear, even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and injustice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. The beginning of this is him saying, there's this burden that's been laid upon me as I look at the events and the things going on around me. I am troubled by what I see. I look at the violence that's taking place amongst his people. He was looking at their idolatry. He's looking at all of these things. And he's saying, why is God not doing something about it? Okay? So if you've ever been in this place where you're like, does God see what's going on? And if he sees, why is he not doing something about it? Is God a God of, uh, of um, where he like doesn't care or he cares more about this people group than that people group? Maybe God's busy. Uh, maybe just in your own life personally. You're like, does God not see me? Does he not understand the, the time frame in which I'm on? That I'm, I'm at my last rope and I, I'm on the end here. Like I need help and God's not doing anything. Perhaps on a global level. I don't know if you've noticed in the past few years that the world has gone completely mad, right? Thrice has a song. It's called All the World is Mad. It's fantastic. You should listen to it. It's mainly the chorus, The World is Mad. But the whole world has gone crazy. Russia is attacking Ukraine. China's like, we're going to take over Taiwan. Um, we're on the cusp of perhaps what some are saying, World War III. I don't know. We don't know. But things are going crazy. Look at the last year when we had uh, BLM and riots in the street. Seattle, kind of a big deal, that whole thing. Um, riots, violence increasing. San Francisco's a nut job place. Like, my wife and I used to love to go there. She's here tonight, people. My wife. For a long time. Some of you were like, you're not married. I am. She exists. She's here. She's usually taking care of our four beautiful children. <laughs> so, so that's what she's doing so that I could be here with you. So, um, you know, give her a high five or something. But anyway, 
San Francisco is like just this, it's hell on earth. You know, you don't even want to go there because of the violence and like you're afraid of getting stabbed. Like this is a reality within our world. Like, whereas we, we can kind of like, you know, Babylon B can make jokes about things like this and we're like, haha, yeah. But it's the real, there's a reality that's going on of an increase in violence, an increase in pestilence, an increase in all the things that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, wars and rumors of wars. And he says, in the last days, these things are going to, this is what it's going to look like. Okay? We're living in it. We're seeing it. Like wars and rumors of wars are happening. And we can pray and see God and then open our eyes and be like, did it happen? Did he fix it? Is it changed? Or maybe on a personal level, you've been praying for something in your own life and you're like, it's not changing, it's not getting fixed. Does God not see? This is what Habakkuk is dealing with. So if you're like, the Old Testament's not relevant. Oh, yeah, it is. Like super relevant. This guy went through exactly what we are going through, what you're experiencing or will experience some point in your life. He's praying, God, where's all this injustice? Where, why won't you stand in and do something? He wondered where God was and why God didn't set things right. Why won't you answer my prayer, he's saying. Why do you, why do you show me iniquity, he said. Like, why do I have to see this? It caused me to see trouble. This was an excellent question, right? Habakkuk says, why do you let me see all these things? Because he was of, uh, I think he was of the tribe of Levi, he actually knew what was going on in the courts. Like from, from every level of, of the court system, he could see the corruption all the way down through the priesthood, all the way, like everywhere there's corruption. And he's like, why are you allowing me to see this stuff? And if you're allowing me to see it and I'm praying about it, why aren't you fixing it? Why does God allow us to see iniquity and trouble in ourself or in others? Why, why God allows us to see iniquity in ourselves? There's a few things. Number one is to keep us humble. Let's keep us humble. I don't know about you, but I can be pretty prideful and arrogant, especially when I see someone else's sin and I'm like, oh my gosh, get it together, okay? Like, what are we, 12? Like, especially guys my age and stuff. I'm like, come on. What are you, you know, yeah. But I do the exact same thing just in a different way. But I'm like, but that's okay. It's different. You don't know my struggle <laughs> or whatever. Okay. Why does, why does God allow us to see iniquity in ourselves? Jesus even said, um, or no, James said, nope, Jesus said it. They were brothers. So <laughs> said a lot of the same stuff. But he said, remove, like, remove the plank from your own eye before you remove the speck in someone else's. Why do we always see the speck in someone else's eye? because it's made of the same stuff in our eye. The word speck is the word sawdust. When Jesus says a log or a log hanging out of your eye, a log, a, part of, a particle of that would be sawdust, the speck in someone else's. Why do we see it? It's because it's made of the same stuff. And so we are easy, or, or more easily inclined to recognize it in someone else. It keeps us humble, right? A dependency upon God. No one has arrived. If you think that you've arrived at some kind of personal holiness, you're wrong. You're wrong. You are wrong. <laughs> like there's always room to improve in our walk with Jesus. We're always working towards that day where we stand before him in perfection. It keeps us humble. Not only that, but to keep us submissive to him in our hour of trouble. When we go through trial, God, we submit to your sovereign hand and will. 
um, to make us value salvation all the more. If you ever have time to read a book, there's a book called So Great, A Salvation by J.M. Strongbeck. Read that book and try not to cry as you read that book because he goes through why salvation is so amazing. He looks at it from the standpoint of creation, that salvation is a greater work than God creating the world by his own speech, like with his words. That, that salvation is, is greater than, than the seas, than all that. He just goes on and on about all these wonderful things. He says salvation is better. Salvation is something that a lot of times... Um, uh, familiarity can breed contempt. You're like, yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, that's cool. It's when we're hit with this real sense of sin in our life and that we don't earn God's favor, but it's been given to us. And we see the blackness of our sin for what it really is and, and the diamond that is God's salvation in reflection to our sin. And suddenly we're like, man, I don't deserve this. God's salvation is, is so... It's so good. There's so much value in it. God allows us to see iniquity in others. It's not to like show your holiness against theirs, but a lot of times we see things going on to show us that we might have uh, where we might have been ourselves, where, where we could have been ourselves had it not been for the grace of God in our own life. Um, also to make us see the wickedness of sin that we might pass by and hate it, not to indulge in it ourselves to see the results of sin and where it goes and where it leads. It also makes us admire the grace of God when he saves a sinner, right? We admire like how great God's grace is when someone who, who is pulled from the pit and cleaned up and made pure and holy and standing before God, worshiping him, serving him, a part of the body of Christ, and you're like, wow, God's grace is huge. Charles Spurgeon, he says, it's good for us, or God allows us to see iniquity. It says to set us more earnestly to work that God can use us to save others and extend God's kingdom. He says, ah, oh, my brethren, we need to know more the evil of men to make us more earnest in seeking their salvation. For if there, there be anything in which the church is lacking, it is more than in any other matter. It is the matter of earnestness. Who talks like that? What is he saying? What is, what is the sin and the violence that we see around us? It's not so we can hide in our church, right, and fossilize and just, like, wait it out till Jesus comes back. Like, right, everyone grab guns and, like, everyone hide out, get ammo. I remember when Obama first got elected, I was in this meeting, um, and everyone's like, that's it. Like, the, the world's over. Like, it's going to hell in a handbasket. Grab guns, buy ammo, move to the mountains, hide your kids and hide your wives or whatever. And, like, that was it. And I remember my pastor walked in the room and, and just in his little old man limp, just walked in and he's like, uh, you know, last I checked. Right? Okay. <laughs> He said, last I checked, God's still on the throne. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, God's still on the throne. Like, oh, okay, yeah. Okay? But there is one thing that it does. It's, it shouldn't cause us to hide out in church, although it's a great place to be. It should cause an earnestness in us to see others saved because time is short and Jesus is coming back, right? That's what it, it should create in all of us. 
Um, he says, iniquity, trouble, plundering, and violence, strife, contention. The law is powerless, he says. Like, God, your law is just being trampled like no one cares. Justice never goes forth. Perverse judgment proceeds. Habakkuk saw trouble and sin everywhere from personal relationships to the courts of law. And this distressed him so much that he cried out to God and asked God why he didn't bring judgment and immediately correct things, which is the right thing to do, right? It's not a bad thing that he's doing here. He's not like complaining to God. It's that he's bringing these concerns. He's saying, God, what are you doing? Not in the sense of like, what are you doing in this disrespectful way, but in, I don't know what you're doing. I, you are infinite and I'm finite. Like, I don't understand. Help me, God, to understand what you're doing because it's starting to cause me to lose my footing. Like, I'm losing traction here. And, and a lot of people, I don't know if you've heard of this, like, mass exodus away from the church and away from God all because of everything that's going on, okay? It's like this new thing, like we're deconstructing. Do you know that you're, this, it's not a new thing, nor is deconstruction a Christian word, okay? If you're like, I'm deconstructing my faith. It's not a Christian idea. This is not a church thing. This is a world thing. It comes from a postmodern, applied postmodernism in our world, Okay? There's a difference between struggling with faith and struggling with aspects of faith, and there's a whole different aspect to deconstructing your faith. That is not a Christian idea. That is not a biblical idea. But there have been people throughout history, even Christians, who have struggled with seeing everything that's going on and going, God, I don't understand. Psalm 73, a guy named Asaph. If you have a second, turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, this is what Asaph says. If you're deconstructing, let's talk. Like, come, we'll talk about it. If you're like, yeah, I'm going, Josh, this guy did it and that guy did it, and they offer a class on how to do it, let's talk about it because it's not a good thing. It's not a biblical thing. This is what Asaph says. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a, gar a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning the oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and waters of full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is their knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. Do you hear what Asaph is saying? He's saying, I'm looking around at all these wicked people that don't serve the Lord, and their eyes are they're so full of everything that they want that their eyes are bulging out of their sockets. They increase in riches. When they die, it's almost like there's no pain in it. He says, I don't understand how it seems like their life is more blessed than mine. This is a psalm writer. 
okay? He's saying, I don't understand why the wicked seem blessed and those who are serving the Lord don't. Maybe if you've ever felt that way, you're in good company. But look at what he says later on. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Asaph says, I, I would have slipped. But then I went into the sanctuary of the Lord in the house of God, and I realized, oh, their end, that's the end. For, for me, eternity with God. Whatever pains in this life are but for a moment, but in eternity with God, I will forever be with him in holiness and righteousness, set free to them. They will, they will eternally be bound in their sins and trespasses in hell. And, and so Asaph had the same struggle. He's going, well, I don't understand, God, what, why does it seem like everyone's getting away with everything? Anyone ever have a friend like that who just got away with everything? You always got caught. I was the kid who always got caught. Always got caught. Didn't matter what I was doing, I got caught. I was in trouble. My friends would be like, oh, you idiot. Maybe it's because I was big and they could see me easier. I don't know, but I always got caught. My parents found out. How it, it just never failed. They worked at my school. So if I got in trouble in class, they found out the next period I was in trouble <clears throat> right then, twice. I would leave the principal's office, walk down the hall, and there was my mom. And I'm like, dang it. Double trouble. This is what Asaph is saying. Like, I don't, I don't understand. God, what are you doing? It wasn't until I went into your sanctuary and I remembered, God, you are sovereign you are holy and you are righteous, and Lord, you will judge. Like, you know what you're doing. I'm not God, you are. And it comes to that conclusion of, of um, the Lord is in control. And this is the Lord's reply, okay? So he speaks to God, and God actually talks back. The Lord responds to Habakkuk in verse 5. He says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. Okay? The Lord is working, and Habakkuk would see it. That's what he says. I'm working in a way, and you're going to see it. But I've heard this verse quoted, and people are like, God's going to do a work that is so good that you wouldn't even believe it. It says so in Habakkuk. That's not exactly what is, is being said here. God is saying, I'm going to do a work that is so bad, you wouldn't believe it if I told you, right? It's not like I'm going to bring, <laughs> he's not saying it's too good to be true. He's saying it's too bad to be true. Why? Verse 6, for indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans. Oh, man. He's saying I'm going to do a work. I am working behind the scenes. I, I am going to bring justice. I am going to right those wrongs. Don't you worry. Be, and it's going to be in a way that you would never believe, even if I told you. And he's not going, yay. Oh, this brings me so much joy and satisfaction. He, God says it's going to be through the Chaldeans. And what is his response is in verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. He, he just goes, wait a second. They're worse than us. They're more wicked than we are. And you're going to use them to, to bring judgment on your people? He's so confused. He's utterly astounded. God told this troubled prophet, don't worry about it. Look at the surrounding nations, and from, from them will come a nation that will be my instrument of judgment on sinful Judah. 
And he says, it's going to be too bad to be true. A work of judgment so astounding that Habakkuk would have a hard time believing it is what that verse means. I'm raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians as they're called. Eventually, they came against Judah. They came as sent by the Lord. They came as an instrument of God's judgment and justice. They conquered Judah and exiled God's people out of the promised land. They took them away. Okay? Verse 12 and through 17 is Habakkuk, his first tr- he's troubled by their judgment against Judah, but God answered by telling him judgment was on the way, right? He's like, I'm worried. How come, how come you're not bringing justice? And God says, I'm going to bring justice, but it's not going to be in the way that you think. And now he's troubled about the method in which God's going to bring that judgment. Um, just to give you an idea, it would be like crying out against uh, to God about the state of the church in America and hearing God respond by saying, I'll fix the problem by an enemy invasion of America. Like, you're like God, bring revival. Like, bring us back to you, right? Uh, Habakkuk had actually lived through this time of revival under King Josiah. Like, he saw, like, God do a work in their midst and them coming back to the Lord, and now they're declining again. He's like, bring us back to that. And God's like, I'm going to do that, but it's going to be... It's going to be through judgment. It's going to come in a different way. I'm going to bring an invasion upon you. And he says, wait a minute. The problem's bad, but your cure is worse than the disease. That hits a little too close to home within the last few years, doesn't it? Right? The cure is worse than the disease. Like, wait a second. I don't, I don't see what you're doing here. I'm confused. Look what he says in verse 13 at the end of it. He says, why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteously than, than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them for the, in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. He says, why do, you, why do you make us like these fish? And people are just dragging this net behind a boat and we're just getting caught up in it. Just easy pickings. God, I still don't understand what you're doing. And why would that be the method, right? Why, why would you do it this way? And in, in chapter 2, we go to the waiting upon the Lord. This is the part that everyone loves, right? I'm just waiting upon the Lord. I'm just waiting on God right now. I'm just waiting. Verse 1, he says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart. And watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. It's the most emo part of the Bible ever, okay? <laughs> he walks out onto like the city wall. Rampart was like a wall, right? This, this enclosure. And he says, I'm going to sit. His, his hair is combed over his eye. <laughs> and his, his hood's up and his sweatshirt's pulled. And he's like, I'm just going to wait on the Lord. Just kidding. But if there's ever an emo moment in the Bible, it's this. But he says, I'm going to watch and I'm going to wait. I've asked God some questions, and I'm going to wait to hear his answer. Habakkuk fully expected God to speak to him. He fully expected God to speak to him, and he was willing to wait for the answer. And so he waits there. Often when we question God, we don't expect him to answer us, but Habakkuk did. Other times, we, we do not expect God will answer, but we demand that he answer and answer according to our schedule. And Habakkuk approaches this with the correct attitude. 
uh, F.B. Meyer, he says, how often God answers come and find us gone. We have waited for a while and thinking there was no answer, we have gone our way. But as we have turned the first corner, the post has come in. It is not enough to direct your prayer unto God. Look up, look out until the blessing alights on your head. Part of waiting on God is truly waiting on God. Like, not in a, in a sitting there sulking way, like, I'm not moving till God speaks. I've been praying about God getting me a job, and it's like, well, have you gotten an interview? No, I'm waiting on God. You should do something. Like, there's active waiting, and then there's sitting there and being lazy. Like, there's, there's a difference, right? I'm just waiting for God to drop a job in my lap. You know how he does that? Through indeed.com or whatever. Like, do something. Like, you have to move in a direction. Like, we gotta, we gotta take steps of faith. We gotta take a step in a direction. And you're like, no, I'm just waiting for my spouse. How are you doing that? I'm sitting in my house by myself. I'm just waiting on God. We can use that as an excuse as to not do anything, right? The fi- like, I wanna say the fear of failure is a real fear. Anyone? Like, failure is a real fear. If there's anything I'm afraid of, it's bears, sharks, and failure. Those three things, right? And snakes. snakes. (laughs) Absolutely. Because they're all from hell, right? (laughs) Failure didn't exist before the fall. We were all successful, um, but because of sin. But if there's anything that, that really scares me, it's failure. It's failure. That's why a lot of us procrastinate. Right? We procrastinate because if I were to put my full self into something and fail, then what? But if I wait to the last minute, put a minimal effort into something, and then fail, I can be like, well, I waited to the last minute, so it's not a big deal. Right? Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> Some of you, it's hitting real hard of like, oh my gosh, that's why I procrastinate. Yeah, that's why I do it. Anyway, Habakkuk's attitude was right. Because he expected God to correct him. He says, what I will answer when I am corrected. Notice he's, he's saying, it's not God that's wrong. It's me. I'm wrong. And God, I'm waiting for you to correct my heart. Put it in the right direction. I'm not sitting here and being like, God, you're wrong. And you need to answer me. He's saying, I, I, I know that it's me. Because you're sovereign and I'm not. God didn't have to explain himself. He asked it because he knew that he was wrong and he needed to be corrected. His question were his invitation to God saying, God, I don't understand what you are doing, but I know that you are right in all things. Please speak to me and correct me. Verse 3 of chapter 2, it says, For the vision, or he says, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets that he may run uh, who reads it. It's a great verse for pastors and leaders that. Some other guy could teach sometime, but it says, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. There's a word for someone tonight. Underline it, highlight. Though it tarries, wait for it. Means it seems slow. It seems slow to happen, but wait for it. This is the way that God works. It is the way in which God works. This is the way that God makes promises. God makes promises, and he says our faith is the place, uh, faith, our faith is the place in the waiting. That's, that's what's taking place. Faith is growing. Faith is, is being cultivated. The space between promise and payoff is faith. 
the the space between faith and or the the space between promise and payoff is faith. Think about it. Abraham getting the promise of a son to then getting a son. If you were here at church last night, right? That takes faith. There was a, a, a period of time in which God was cultivating his faith. Joseph seeing the sheaves bow down to him and being second in command over Egypt. That took time, and there was faith that was being cultivated in his life. David anointed to be king and then being chased all over God's green earth and being almost killed by some madmen until he became king took faith. And God was putting into David what David needed to be king. If you read the the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1, verse 11, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? First time in history, everybody. There are, the cross-references are on the screen tonight. It has only taken me 11 years. Zach would be so proud. Zach, when you listen to this, please be proud. (laughs) What are we talking about? Jeremiah 1, verse 11. It says, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I'm watching over my word to perform it. The almond tree, interesting enough, is the first to bud, but it is the last to blossom. And so we wait, he says. Habakkuk, he says to him, I'm going to show you something now, but though it tarries, wait for it. Because God's promises, what it produces is faith until there's payoff. Like that's, that's that time in which we wait upon God, where God has spoken to you through, through a pastor, through a verse, through whatever, through a promise. And you're like, well, when is that going to happen? When is that going to take place? And God says, Wait. Wait on me. Wait on me. It will come to pass. Just wait. And that's what he tells Habakkuk. That's what he told Jeremiah. His promises come true. He does what he says. So we wait. Faith is grown in the soil of waiting. Faith is grown in the soil of waiting. I hate waiting. I hate it. Amen. It's like what Inigo Montoya said. I hate wait, right? I hate wait. Princess Bride, look it up. Anyway, waiting. But guys, it's essential to our, our life of faith with the Lord. It's waiting on him, waiting for his timing, waiting for what God's gonna do because his timing is perfect. You think of all like the heroes of our faith that we read about in scripture, all of them went through a period of time of waiting. Moses was called to be the deliverer of Israel for 40 years, man. He was just taking care of sheep. He's like, well, when am I going to be this deliverer? Like, like when is this? Gonna... <laughs> I'm just a shepherd. And then God shows up to him when he's 80 and he's like, okay, now, now you're going to be, now, now's the time. He's like, really? Are you sure? Abraham, when he was told that he was going to have a kid and he's like, awesome. Like, I've always wanted one of those. It's so awesome. That's great. Like when? Next year? Nine months from now? Two years? When? God's like, just wait. I'll show you. It's going to happen. And then when he turned 100, he finally had a kid. It's like all those people, they went through times of waiting, and in that waiting, God grew their faith. 
The Bible tells us later on, Habakkuk tells us, Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. In contrast to the proud man, there are the just. The principle of their life is faith. Instead of pride that looks to self, true faith looks outside of self unto the Lord God, while pride always looks to self. And this brief statement from the prophet Habakkuk is one of the most important and most quoted Old Testament statements in the New Testament. Paul used it to show that the just are to live by faith, right? The just live by faith, not by law. Being under the law isn't the way to be found just before God. Only living by faith is. If you are declared just, that is approved or approved by God before God. You have done it by a relationship of faith. If your life is all about living under the law, then God does not find you approved, he says. In, in Hebrew, the important part of the verse has only three words. The justified man by his faith and will live. Every word in Habakkuk 2.4 is important, and the Lord quotes it three times in the New Testament just to bring out the fullness of the meaning. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, it is the commentary on the justified man that the just shall live by faith. That is the commentary on justified. It says, for in, the, in, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 10, verse 38, is the commentary on faith. That the just shall live by faith. Yet, he says, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith faith. Galatians 3.11 is the commentary on the Christian life, how we are to live. The just or the righteous shall live by faith, how we're to live. He says in, in verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. God comments three times on this one verse in the New Testament. It's key. It's the story of Martin Luther. He says, before his bold declaration of truth of the gospel, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. As a monk, he went on a pilgrimage to Rome. As he crossed the Alps, he fell deathly ill. As he lay sick, he felt great turmoil, both physically and spiritually. And a verse that had previously touched him came to mind, the just shall live by faith, in Habakkuk 2.4. Then Luther recovered. He went on to Rome and did the tourist things that all the pilgrims did. One day he came to the church of St. John's Lateran, where there is a staircase said to be from Pilate's Judgment Hall. It was the custom of pilgrims to climb this staircase, but never on their feet. They painfully climbed a step at a time on their knees, saying prayers and kissing the steps where it was thought that the blood of Jesus fell. Luther came to this place and started doing just as all the pilgrims because the Pope promised an indulgence to all who climbed the steps on their knees and said, and said the prayers. As he did this, Luther remembered the words from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. It is said that when he remembered this, he stopped, stood up, 
walked down and went straight home to Germany. And some say this is where the Reformation began on those stairs. The just shall live by faith. Luther, in his own words, said, Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him because not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of life, he still further increased our torture by the gospel. But when by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. The just shall live by faith. We're called to live by faith and nothing else. Some Christians live by devotions. Some Christians live by works. Some Christians live by feelings. And some live by circumstances. We are called to live by faith. Live by faith. In verses 5 through 15, he pronounces woes. Whoa. Um, Joey Lawrence style. Whoa. Anyway, from Blossom. It's in the 80s. Early 90s. Anyway... Woes. Verses 9 through 11 are woe to the greedy. Verses 12 through 14 are woes, woes to the violent. Verses 15 through 17 are woes to the drunkard. And verses 18 through 20 are woes to the idolater, speaking of those who are practicing these evil things. And in chapter 3, Habakkuk then worships the Lord. In verse 3b, it says, His glory covered the heavens. And the earth was full of his praise. <clears throat> As Habakkuk prayed for revival, he began to praise the God who brings revival. And in this song of praise, it's punctuated by several expressions of Selah, which, are, which means to pause, as in the Psalms. Habakkuk glorified the power, the majesty of God. It is good to praise God like this. It is good to praise God like this. And God's people need to do it more. It's good to praise God because it gives proper honor and glory to God. It declares God's specific works. Because it teaches and reminds us of who God is and what he has done. It places man in proper perspective under God. Because it builds confidence in the power and the works of God. And that's why he does what he does. He begins to worship the Lord, even though he doesn't understand what God's doing. Even though God reveals his plan and what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. He's going to use these people group and he's going, I don't agree necessarily with it in the method in which you are doing it. But I agree that you are a great God and the works of your hand are worthy to be praised. He says later on, you went forth, um, you went forth, for the salvation of your people, for salvation with the anointed. As Habakkuk remembered how God had saved in the past and made him full of faith for what God could do in the present and in the future, he also declared that salvation is brought with your anointed. And the Lord's anointed is none other than the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So we have glimpses of the Messiah coming, right? The whole theme, the whole theme of these minor prophets is they're going from this mess, but the Messiah is coming. Their, their life is, is riddled with, with sin and, and they're slaves of sin and actual physically people. They are slaves and God's saying, you have made a mess of things. But as you repent, as you return, I will bring restoration through the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. 
what's crazy is that Habakkuk's not just practicing positive thinking and like shut out the idea of everything that's going on, right? He saw those problems and what, what we're, he was remembering is that God was greater than all of it. Look at verse 17. This is where we'll close. It says, though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the field yield no food, Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on high hills. When he, He's not just practicing like being positive. Like I'm just gonna think positively today, positive vibes only or whatever. Like don't harsh my mellow. That's even a thing like, like, hey, man, why are you so da- such a downer? Let's just think positive. Like, there, no amount of positive thinking could, like, lift him up out of the fact that God's going to bring, again, another exile. But he, he just begins to praise, and he says, Habakkuk thought of the deer running about on high hills, never losing a step and never falling, right? Asaph even said, I started to lose my footing. And Habakkuk says, as I look to the Lord, he makes my feet solid. Just like the deer prancing upon the hills. More than that, the deer positively dance and leap on the hills. They are full of life and joy. So the prophet proclaimed, God will set my steps that firmly and lively also. As I trust in him, as I wait on him, he will not allow me to slip or fall. And I will do more than merely plod along. I will skip about with life and joy. Man, Habakkuk. He goes from this worry and he begins to bring it before the Lord and and God begins to reveal his plan and he's working through all of it, man. Just like, what is this? God, what are you doing? And as he just begins to wait on God, revealing, God reveals himself to him. And as he waits on the Lord, that waiting then turns into praise and worship because of who God is and that God is sovereign and God's in control. So as we look upon not only the things that are going outside of our personal relationships, as we look outside to the world and we see chaos, we look inside and sometimes we see chaos. And we go, God, why aren't you doing anything? God would say to us, just wait. Wait on me. I'm working. I'm working in a way that maybe you don't understand. I'm bringing about restoration through, through something that you wouldn't pick for yourself. But keep your eyes on the Messiah, on the hope that is to come. Like, keep, keep your eyes on Jesus. Um, and live your life with joy. And live it with, with an expectation of life with God. Someone wrote in a question a few weeks ago. I don't know who it was, but um, they were saying, how is a young adult supposed to live in times like this? Like, as a young person, how am I supposed to live my life as we're looking at the last days? And, and my thought was like, like you would live in any other time. Living for Jesus, like exactly the way the Bible calls you to live. Preaching the gospel to those who don't know Jesus and living a life of joy as you focus on God. Right? Living with earnestness to see the unsaved saved. Right? That, that's... That's the whole thing the Bible teaches us is this is how we're to live in light of the gospel, in light of what God has done for us. This is how we're to live. It's not some secret thing that like, okay, now that we're in the end times, now we need to live like this. 
God's always called you to holiness, always called you to righteousness, always called you to purity. That's the will of God for your life. He has always called his church to be a light and always called them to preach the gospel, always. From the time he ascended into heaven to he says, to the time that I return, preach the gospel. So you're like, what is God's will for my life? It's that. Do that and love God and love people and you'll be just fine. Like, anyway, skip like a deer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, I do pray that you would continue to make application in our life um, because your Holy Spirit continues to work these things out in us. And Lord, we pray um, just for everything that's going on inside, outside. Lord, maybe some of us are confused or we're beginning to slip and doubt. Lord, we pray that you would, again, Give us a proper view of ourself. Give us a proper view of who you are. And God, that would encourage us to praise and worship in light of everything that's going on. We thank you, God, that you're still on the throne. And you're in control. And so we bow before a holy God and trust in you. Lord, those of you, those here tonight that are waiting for you, 